Hello and welcome to the TIFO Football Podcast. I am your host, Joe Devine, and today I am joined by my friend, Alex Stewart. Hello, Alex. Hello. How are you? I'm very well. How are you? Good. Let's talk about Liverpool. Shall we? Yes. So last week, as many of you may have heard, I spoke to Seb Stafford-Bohr about Tottenham. Uh, We gave them the once-over, and uh, we're going to do the same today uh, with Liverpool. We're going to start by talking about their game with Crystal Palace at the weekend, which uh, the second half of which, at least, was very exciting, wasn't it, Alex? Um, but also we're going to talk about how it's kind of an exception to Liverpool's rule of late in that they've been um, they've been very successful defensively this season. So at least let's let's say that, and we'll get into that shortly. Um, starting with the uh, the Palace game, three goals conceded at home for Liverpool. I think I'm right in saying is as many as have been conceded at home for Liverpool all season, uh, which is why we're sort of calling this the exception to the rule. Let's talk about how they set up for the game though, because. One of the biggest talking points uh, with Liverpool this season is how they've changed from last season. The focus of that, uh, certainly from Christmas onwards, has been on a kind of formational change, moving from the 4-3-3 to the 4-2-3-1, which you don't think is actually the key behind the differences this season, do you? I think that formations can be, uh, I don't want to say misleading, but essentially if you're looking at a, a 4-2-3-1, that can be... A variety of different arrangements so you you could have the the wingers in that pushing very very high to make something that looks more like a 4-2-1-3 or you could have it very lopsided in much the same way that France did in the World Cup so Blaise Matuidi and Kylian Mbappe were technically occupying the same positions on opposite flanks but clearly one was much much higher and much more aggressive and the other was sitting back, tucking in a little bit. And we've seen that with Navi Keita with Liverpool. Well, that's bit. exactly what I was going to say. So that, you know, while in this instance, Liverpool are nominally doing that, and there is, I suppose, from a personnel perspective, there's a difference because Firmino is sitting back and playing more as a 10. Um, you know, in, in a lot of ways where players actually end up being on the pitch, particularly in attacking phases of the game doesn't necessarily look all that dissimilar. Um, I think, yes, they've got more dynamism. The midfield three for Liverpool, particularly last season, were very adept at winning the ball, and some of them were quite adept at progressing it from deep and looking for the front three. But a lot of that creativity was engendered by the front three or by fullbacks pushing up really high. And part of the job of that midfield three was to cover across into those spaces behind the fullbacks to make sure Liverpool didn't get caught out. And that's why they had quite a kind of workman-like, reasonably defensive uh, system. Particularly the addition of Naby Keita was supposed to inject more dynamism, press-breaking, ball-carrying from midfield. And effectively, they've, they've sort of pushed him up and out a little bit. Uh, but that's still what you're getting. And, and when Liverpool are defending, they're still quite happy in some instances, to retranche into something that looks more almost like a four-five-one or a four-four-two, because your defensive position again is is probably a truer reflection of what your formation actually looks like. Mm. You made the point actually when we were watching the the Crystal Palace game again this morning that who scored had listed Crystal Palace's starting formation as a four-five-one. When as you as you rightly say there. Uh, that was their defensive formation. In attack, obviously, Zaha and Townsend are not still in the midfield. No, and and I think in, in that way, like the way who scored have laid it out there as a 4-5-1 is helpful because you can see what the structure is when they are defending. But then in attack, where 
generally speaking, an attacking position displays greater fluidity, greater interchange, because that's when a team is seeking to be unpredictable and is seeking to do things that cause the opposition confusion. Mm -hmm. Whereas when they're defensive, that's a kind of a more of a drilled system. Yes, they'll probably react to what the opposition are doing to a degree, but you could see very clearly Palace were an obvious 4-5-1. Whereas in attack, Ayu was dropping off or he was pushing up. Zaha and Townsend weren't necessarily occupying the same position uh, vertically no. uh, on the pitch. One was getting ahead. So, you know, it, it's it's a sensible way to look at it. And, and from that perspective, to the eye, yes, there is a change in what Liverpool are doing, but how that actually manifests in terms of attack and how those players end up where they are mm. getting closer and closer to the opposition goal doesn't necessarily mean as much of a change as the formation change might suggest. Okay, so then back to Liverpool. If we consider that the formation change isn't perhaps the the key to the difference in Liverpool this season to what it is last season, can we at least say of the formational shift to a four two three one, which hasn't hasn't been something that we've seen for the entire season. It's been since the sort of Christmas period onwards. Uh, I think particularly with that game against Arsenal, it's been used much more since then. Is part of that to accommodate players. So we've seen that in recent weeks, Fabinho has become crucial to, to the midfield and the club is, is, is reticent to drop him. And also, uh, Sheridan Shakiri is starting on the right, um, which I don't think is really anything anyone would have expected of him when, when Liverpool picked him up from Stoke. Right? That's, uh, it's, it's very impressive for him to break into the team, but, but he has done, hasn't he? So is that, is that shift more about accommodating informed players than it is? Because there are there are... This is where we see a difference between what, what a formation is and what a system is, right? Yeah. Um, so I think there's two answers to that. The first is, to a degree, you want to accommodate form players, but you also want to pick the best team that you feel will counter what the opposition are seeking to do. And one of the things that Shakiri is particularly good at doing is whether it's coming on late in the game, as he has done to great effect a few times recently, or whether it's starting, he is able to offer a a dynamism carrying the ball from deep, which is more kind of physical in its nature. It's not, he's not looking to exploit space necessarily um, by drifting into it and then bursting onto the ball. He's kind of happy to take it and then try and push forwards. Whereas particularly on the other side, Mane, Mane is good at dribbling, but he, He's most effective when he's kind of cutting in behind the fullback or into the channel between the fullback and the centre-back and looking for the ball coming over to him. So when teams are facing Liverpool, they are sitting back quite a lot, partly because they know that Liverpool's attackers are really good and partly because they know that Liverpool may seek to counter-press them and having an organised defensive position if they win the ball back means that they're then harder to counter-press as well. When that happens, Liverpool then have to find a way of dealing with that, and it's probably the case that particularly someone like Shakiri and also Keita to a degree, are better at playing against a compact defence. One of the reasons that Liverpool have been so effective, and say, for example, with um, you know the game against Tottenham that we talked about in the video that we did on United... 
that's a very complicated sentence, but the, the, the exploitation of space behind the fullbacks where you've got Salah and Mane are very, very quick. They're very good at attacking space. And that works well. And if you've got a workman like midfield behind that who can play balls over, then it's fine. As teams retrench, you have to find different ways of breaking those teams down. And playing balls into space behind fullbacks and so on isn't necessarily going to work if the fullbacks aren't pushing up at all mm. and if the wingers are coming back and doubling up. Now, if you're playing against uh, you know two quite thick banks of, of midfield and defence, having a midfield three, all of whom are quite destructive and none of whom are playing the sorts of aggressive deep progression passes that might afford an option in behind it's going to get very very boring and no one's going to score and that's why the the formational change to a degree is about incorporating players that can do that but it's also a response to the fact that more teams are sitting off and trying to compress the space and Mm. trying to make it hard for Liverpool to get in behind them well my next question was actually going to be about Shaqiri facilitating Salah's move inside perhaps we'll put that on ice for a second because I assume, based on what you've just said, that Jurgen Klopp knew that in the summer when he bought Shakiri, right? So because, because as, and we've talked about this before, the idea that Liverpool a couple of times now have, have picked up players from either teams that have been relegated, as you've said in previous podcasts, or from smaller English or Scottish clubs, which is something... Sometimes it seems, in the recent game at least, unusual as, as a, of a bigger 16, perhaps with Tottenham aside, right? And maybe, you know, Arsenal's example of Rob Holding or something like that. Tottenham don't buy anyone. Tottenham don't buy but anyone. Yeah. Sure, sure. Um, but I suppose the point I'm making is that when Shakiri did sign for Liverpool, you know, he, he, he's very well known in the Premier League. He's been around for, for, for a long time as well. And obviously he's got an illustrious history, played at Bayern uh, a few years back. Um, but I think people's impression of Shakiri was as a sort of flash player with strength who, as you said, was able to sort of carry the ball forwards on his own, a bit like Arnautovic. You know, there's a, there's a similarity, in my mind at least, between those two sorts of players. I assume that Jurgen Klopp saw how Shakiri was useful to his... Because when, when we were talking about him before, I was expecting you to say that he's quite similar to Mane, but you said the opposite, right? In terms of in terms of their their, their, their the strongest skill set of, of being on the flank. You said something different. So this is just an illustration of what I don't know that maybe you do. I assume that Jurgen Klopp knew that this season, because Liverpool played so well last year, he knew they were going to have to break down teams more perhaps mm. than they did last year, and he knew that teams were going to cotton on to the the counter pressing thing. Um, so bunching up more tightly in defence is probably a good way of nullifying them. Shakiri presumably, um, and again to a, to a certain extent, Navigator as well. Um, presumably, they were bought to to counter that specific counter to counter a counter. I think that's probably true to a degree. Um, that's natural evolution. That's long term goals, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, that's an evolution over a certain period of time. I think there. Are, I think there are a couple of interesting points to make. The first is that that you can have players who do many things similarly. And yet are still different types of players. So we talked in the video that we did about Man United 
Which no one will have seen. Which no one will have seen. Because it was a members-only video. Well, yeah, but the point is still relevant. So if you want to see it, you can become a member of the TIFO YouTube channel. (laughs) It's almost like I did that on purpose, except I didn't. You didn't. Um, So you've got Marshall and Rashford, who do a lot of reasonably similar things, but also in the way fundamentally that they attack are looking to do different things in terms of Martial wants to take on a player, Rashford wants to run into space, more or less. If you were being really blunt about their differences. They can do both. They can do both. But their strengths are in one. Right. And and so in that regard, I think Shakiri is a player who is not so dissimilar from how the rest of Liverpool's front three played that he's complete wild card, but he does offer a different approach which can be useful. And Jurgen Klopp would have known that. And Jurgen Klopp would have known that. Because to me, when they bought him, I, I summed it up, and this is this is part of my inability to understand football, I summed it up as a kind of, well, he's a good player and a team that are being relegated. He's too good for the championship. Someone was going to pick him up, and so Liverpool did. But there's there's probably more to it than that, I imagine. Yeah. And if, and if it were a different team that had picked him up, then that would probably be true. Um, the issue with Liverpool, or not the issue with Liverpool, but the, the, the fact with Liverpool is that they have recently obviously made quite a big thing of the way that they approach scouting and transfers and that they are they're data-driven, they are able to pick up players like Robertson and Wijnaldum. If, it, it's one of those funny things, and this all, almost is therefore a stupid thing to say, but if, if Everton had bought him, for example... And I'm not. There's not a, like Liverpool duality there. What I'm saying is that they're an example of a team, or West Ham would buy Shakiri, and you kind of think exactly what you thought. Mm-hmm. Whereas exactly the same player can be bought by a different club where there is more thinking behind it, and then you go, oh yeah, well obviously, I mean that does make sense because Liverpool don't just go and buy people. Um, and Klopp will have probably known a bit more about Shakiri than than some other managers because of the time in Germany and so on. Um, we were talking before we started recording this about about transfers and and you know the, Liverpool have got most of their first team on on tran- on uh, contracts until twenty twenty three or twenty four, so that's really good. But mm. when you're looking to and this I guess is a wider question about transfers. If you're a good club and you've got finances and you are improving, do you look to recruit players that are similar to what you've already got so that if Firmino gets injured, there's someone who can come in and play that role? If Henderson gets injured, there's someone who can play that role? Or are you looking for one or two players that are able to be something different, like Spurs signing Lorente, for example? Not that that's worked out particularly well, but there's a clear sense there of we have a certain kind of player. Here is somebody who stylistically, you know, he's a competent footballer, but stylistically he's sufficiently different to afford us an alternative option. And I think that's a really interesting question about why you why you seek to buy different people. And I think with Liverpool, particularly with Keita and Shakiri, what they've done is they've identified a couple of players who are very good technically Kaito, I think much more straightforward I mean when when Kaito was bought it made more sense to me than than Shakiri. I think that's why I single out Shakiri in that statement before because it, it 
it's, it's, if there is thinking behind it, it's much more nuanced than it is with Nabi Kaita. What Nabi Kaita definitely before there's you, definitely thinking behind it. Yeah. Oh no, I'm sure. I'm sure, that, I'm yeah. sure there is. I, I'm saying, I'm saying <laughs> if, to, if. You know, just in case there isn't, just in okay, case that sure. they liked each other or something, or they, you know, they used to be jogging partners or something. Like right. That. Um, okay. Well, listen, we're going to come back to transfers because a little bit later on, we're going to talk about. Um, as you said, that what could be potentially a difficulty for Liverpool going forwards now, as you mentioned, their their first eleven are all down on long term contracts. They're all very very good. It's difficult to imagine who could come in and uh, disperse that. Or, or ch- I mean, having said that, Shakiri just has, but it is difficult to imagine another player who could come in and, and bench Firmino, for example. Mm. But we're going to talk about that because Liverpool don't really have an obvious uh, alternative to him. So we'll come back to that. Let's talk now uh, about what has changed from this season to last. We've mentioned the formation. We think that's kind of potentially more of a um, of a byproduct of different players, a, a different challenge awaiting Liverpool in, in terms of games against defenses that bunch up against each other. But these aren't these aren't the keys uh, to see the, the, these things aren't the key to the to the big change at Liverpool, right? Which I assume you're going to tell me is part of the pressing system. Because the big difference this season to last, 60 points currently. At this point last season, 47 points. Uh, 40, uh, 54 goals, which is, funnily enough, it's exactly the same at this point last season. Liverpool's scoring a lot of goals. The massive difference comes in conceded goals. And at this point last season, it was 28. And today it's 13. And it's worth pointing out that without the exception of the rule of that game against Palace where they conceded three at home, it would have been 10. You know, I mean, Liverpool by, you know, some, I think four goals now are uh, in theory the best defence in in the Premier League. Manchester City, the only other team anywhere close. Um, All other teams are over 20. That's a significant change, isn't it? Because the Liverpool we've known of recent years have been, and even perhaps further back than that, have been a sort of gung-ho team who score a lot of goals and concede a lot as well. And that's why, you know, Saturday's game against Crystal Palace is almost something of a, of a previous era, isn't it? It's, it's not been something we've seen as much this season. 13 goals and we're near the end of January. That's very impressive. So explain to me if you can, and I think we're going to talk about pressing a little bit, but there are also other elements of this, key personnel changes, that sort of thing. How on earth do you go from one season to another, not changing at all how many goals you're scoring but conceding half as many before the podcast we said that if this were if this were a private uh, corporation that had done this that somehow had managed to continue you know, making the same number of sales but slashed the price of manufacturing totally in half i mean it's it, it's incredible it's an incredible achievement to go from one season to another to see this much change of course virgil van dijk is part of that mm. But what else is going on? Because this is this is a big deal. This is the yeah. reason they're first. So there's a couple of things to say. The first thing is that it would be worth looking at the 20-odd... How many did you say? 26, 27 goals that they conceded by 28. this... 28. 28 goals conceded by this point last season, right? Now, if, if, if I had the time and had prepared properly for this podcast... I probably would have gone and looked at each of those 28 goals and, and, and had a look at how many of them, for example, were goalkeeping errors or defensive errors or, you know, rather than just the opposition doing a really good job. Um, and I think it is worth saying that, you know, Palace did not play badly uh, against Liverpool. No. and. And they, they had a clear game plan. They targeted an area of weakness. They're a good team. 
They're a good team. They're well coached. Their so, front three play not dissimilarly to how Liverpool's front three play. Right. Yeah. So I so I think you know it. Games like this are always going to happen at some point. Uh, you you know you come up against a good team who can exploit a particular weakness, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So as a comparative, it is more complex than just saying you know well this has changed a little bit therefore. However. Obviously, the acquisition of Virgil van Dijk is massive because he is probably the best centre-back in the world now. I mean, I was reading a, a, um, a, Jonathan, a Jonathan Wilson article in The Guardian from, I think, mid-December. It was before Christmas. And he was talking about Liverpool and some of the defensive differences. And, and, and uh, you know, this, this is a kind of... It's a woolly stat. It's a hard one to, to really hang your coat on. But the, the difference in, in the number of goals conceded on average per game including Virgil van Dijk this season, as opposed to not including Virgil van Dijk. And also the second, the, the latter half of last season after he arrived from, uh, from, from January is a staggering, staggering difference. Hmm. Now, obviously, as I said, that's a woolly stat. We can't put that all down to Virgil van Dijk. There are obviously other changes as well. But can you quantify at all to me the, the difference that having you know, one of the best centre-backs in the world in your team is going to make? Presumably there's a calming effect on the rest of the team as well. It's not, it's not just that one person's ability to defend. Yeah, I think that's the key point is that you, I mean... Yeah, and bef- Alisson, of course. Before and after stats or with and without stats are quite misleading in the sense that they tend to imply that it's the absence or presence of that one individual that, that is making all of the difference in and of themselves. You know, if you take Virgil van Dijk out, you don't win as many headers because he's really good at headers, etc. That is more complicated than that. And I think what you had was uh, an issue where there wasn't necessarily a senior defender who had the, the requisite level of credibility to match the credibility that other players in that team had. I mean, there's, so, there's Dejan Lovren. Exactly. There's Dejan Lovren. He's got right? a terrible game. Well, right? Dejan Lovren is, is not your kind of calm-headed leader. You know, a good he, player. He is a good player, and I really liked him when he was with us, but he has a tendency to go walk about. He has a tendency to rush forward. To lose his head. Again, in Dejan Lovren's defence, is that because he was playing in front of goalkeepers in whom he didn't have the greatest degree of confidence? Yeah. You know, separating out the individual importance of players within a game that is by its very nature systematic is impossible. You know, and, and even the most complex and intelligent analytics still can't do that to a proper degree. Because if you're a Dejan Lovren and you look to your left or your right and you see you know, no disrespect, but Joe Gomez or Joel Matip, that is not the same as looking to your left or right and seeing Virgil van Dijk, right? It's a huge difference. Um, van Dijk allows... I'd love, I'd love to see Virgil van Dijk if I looked left or right. I wouldn't left mind or which right. right. Whichever. If, whenever I look left or right, Virgil van Dijk was there. I, I mean, would feel I'd feel safer. You would feel safer, I right? would feel safer. Even just, you know, he's in moments of intimacy, I'd feel safer. He's very good at... Passing, so obviously that relieves pressure. If the ball is not coming back with the greater degree of frequency, you can then rearrange your defensive line better. You can push mm-hmm. forwards more. You've got a goalkeeper who can push up and sweep adequately behind that advanced defensive line. So he's really, really good. He's just really he, good. It, like it, he it, is, I mean, he was know, seventy million pounds, right? Seventy-five. I seventy-five think. million pounds, and obviously, look, it's hard not to scoff at numbers like that. We we know it's it's ridiculous, right? 
But it's all relative. Look, look back at this season, and that there are a few since last January. Okay, it's been a whole year, hasn't it? It's been a whole year since last January of the top six clubs. I mean, are there any transfers that make more sense than that? That are, that are better value for money than that now? Well, I mean, in terms of value for money, I, that's a very difficult question to answer. I think in terms of importance, signing Allison was also really, really significant for Liverpool. And, you know, uh, Klopp had put a lot of faith in Karius, who'd obviously come over from Germany and and is the sort of player who you know, contributes well with their feet as much as, or should as much as with their hands. And it just didn't work out. For whatever reason, it didn't work out. And Karius is not a bad goalkeeper, but he is prone to errors. And, you know, Mignolet as a kind of backup to that was not entirely convincing. So you'll often see that, that, that teams that are otherwise pretty good can have problems when they don't have a goalkeeper that convinces. And we talked the other day about De Gea, for example, who De Gea went through a period of being really quite unconvincing and problematic and may have cost United a few times, but because of the circumstances in which De Gea was at that club, it was like, no, persist, it'll be fine, he'll come good, and now look at him. You know, he's top three goalkeepers in the world, no question about it. So... Maybe if they persisted with Karras, they didn't. They signed somebody who's considerably an upgrade on both of the players that had gone before. Mm -hmm. That, again, has a knock-on. Ultimately, you know, you're going to look at at if Liverpool win the title or not. Those are the two signings that people will look back at and say, that is what... Because exactly as you said, you know, if your if your goal output is the same, but the number that you're conceding is over half, it's astonishing, right? That is what will, to the eye, be the thing that wins them the title, mm. and entirely plausibly be the thing that wins them the title. Yeah. And so it will be defensive acquisitions that look like that's what's been the difference. Yeah. And to <laughs> a degree, it is. I'd also say though that you know, you've bought those players in. Everyone else is still performing to the same level that they were last season. Yeah. To a degree. You know, you, you, you look at the fact that it's not just that they've reduced the number of goals that they've conceded, but they have maintained a really high output of goals scored. So don't take the focus off, you know, the fact that the attackers are still doing brilliantly as well. I'm not saying that you are, I'm saying that, that you know, it's very easy to to look at it and go, Oh well, it's because they signed Van Dyke. Van Dyke won Liverpool the title. Mm. Well, it's that's more what I'll be saying if, if they win the title. <laughs> that's a blunt, I look to my left. blunt tool. There he is. Okay, right. Talk to me about pressing because this has changed, and and you know it. We we, we we again we watched the Crystal Palace game this morning. It's not the best example of this, right? But there are so many goals, so many changes of who who's in who's in the, who's in the lead, or even you know who's on top of the game, right? But looking at Liverpool this season compared to last season, last season there was a much more sort of gung-ho approach to pressing. There was, a, you know, it's often defined as the thing that, that Jurgen Klopp described as um, as a heavy metal football, right? And it's all about counter-pressing. It's all about the front three working super hard, winning the ball back high up the pitch and being in areas uh, where they can create goal-scoring opportunities much more quickly than they could if they want it back, uh, if they want it back in their own half, right? This season... There are differences. Liverpool still press frantically. They still do. But we've seen this year, for example, when they go one up, they kind of stop a bit. <laughs> right? Is that 
it, and there, there are a few different reasons for that. And we talked a little bit about it before with, with Shakiri being a, a different sort of a player who can complement that, that approach and also add something different. But there are two possibilities uh, or two reasons, we could say, uh, for them potentially doing that. One of them is to keep players fresher, I would assume, for the latter part or latter stages of the season. Is the other one a greater sense of defensive solidity? I mean, when they're not pressing as frantically, when they are 1-0 up, they hold, they're holding onto the ball a lot, a lot more than they were last year. They're not progressing attacks with the same pace that they were last year because they don't need to if they're already in winning positions. So presumably that is both about a steadier defence, shifting a lot less goals, obviously, but also about keeping the players fresh. I mean, which of those two do you think is the primary, or is there another thing? No, I no, I think. And what are the pressing differences beyond beyond that? If if there's any that are obvious to you, well, I mean they're they're doing it a bit less, right? Um, and they're they're still they're still pressing with intensity in the far corners. Um, so when the opposition have the ball close to their own goal line and are wide, Liverpool are still pressing quite a lot, and they still Presumably like. Presumably, that's because of the you know how they describe that as a kind of additional defender. Yeah, exactly. Oh, no. so in fact, you've almost got two additional two. defenders so there. One yeah. one player attacking a defender who's near right. their own corner flag is like three defenders on one. And right? and they still they still press in the space that's kind of in front of the penalty box quite a lot. Um, that might just be for me now. But <laughs> yes, but I think. What you saw last season was that there was there was a real intensity to the press, and the press would even, uh, I mean, inside the penalty area, they were pressing manically. They would continue to press even when the ball was over the halfway line. Liverpool aren't really doing that quite as much now, so they're sitting off a bit more, or like you say, potentially because you know this this is the thing with pressing is that when you look at a, German pressing people have this idea of particularly because of Klopp and Dortmund of Gagan and things that he said at the time of Gagan pressing and pressing being a, an offensive weapon yeah you know this is this is the way that he, we he attack. described it as the best the best the best football's best playmaker right, right. pressing exactly counter pressing counter pressing yeah. so you know you you rob the opposition when they've just won the ball back they're in a state of disarray but they're they've you know they've won the ball back, so their eyes slightly off the ball, bang straight through two, three passes, killed it. Pressing is also a defensive system, and it's a defensive system for Liverpool just as much as it is for anybody else. So if you are part of the reason for pressing, particularly pr- pressing really energetically and high up the pitch, can be because you're worried that if there's a, a long out ball that your team are going to be vulnerable on the counter because you've got a central defender who loves to tear up the pitch and get caught out of position. And, you know, a lot of Liverpool goals that they conceded last season, from memory this is, rather than specifically checking, but were kind of long balls that, you know, the defence either stepped back away from and didn't deal assertively with or, or were too far up and were caught out of position. And... Which is another thing Virgil van Dijk is doing better this year. right. And because of that, and because Allison is also better at sweeping up behind, there is a sense to which Liverpool can think, do you, do you know, we actually don't have to be quite so worried about what will happen on the counter. We can afford to press mostly offensively when it's a sensible situation to do that, 
but it's not our only means of securing possession and defending ourselves by going harem scarum after the ball all of the time. Mm. So once the ball transitions into Liverpool's half, they're not pressing with anywhere near the degree of intensity that they were last season because they don't have to, because they're much, much more confident in the solidity of that back four, the ability of Alisson to pick up balls that go in behind. Is this a more complicated system? Because you could say that Klopp's been there for a while now. The the team, the eleven, as we've seen it, has you know has been essentially quite similar and assembled at least as of this summer with one or two additions. Mm. <clears throat> we've you know Liverpool's front three in particular have been described as as the greatest uh, little mini team of of pressing in football, right? I mean, they're just, they're fantastic at it. They've obviously learnt that over the last few years and the players that are predisposed to that have been, have been selected, you know, successfully as well, right? But are there more triggers in the game now? Are there more, is there more for a player? Because, you know, one of the, one of the ways that, that um, we talked about this in, in, in previous games, actually, but one of the ways that players know how to press is, is various tr- triggers. And they might be as straightforward as under Southampton, uh, when Hasenhutl first came in, Danny Ings goes, everyone else goes. That's ob- it's obviously much more complicated for Liverpool than that. So can mm. we say that the system in which, which the players have had to learn over the summer or over the course of this season is more complicated than it is last year? Or is it just is it a reduction? I mean, it, that's there, a really... are dif- there are different times to press, right? Yeah. You, you need to know what the score is, for example. Right. If I'm 1-0 up, I don't need to do this. If it's 0-0 or yeah. we're behind, I'm in this area of the pitch and therefore I do need to do it. There's if a, yeah, there's going, a lot go... of different yeah. variables involved. And I think it's one of those things where you know, we could watch every Liverpool game and we could try and make a guess as to what's happening. Mm. And we still wouldn't get it oh, right sure. every time. But because do you think it's more complicated this year or is it just a reduction of overall pressing? I think it's as a reduction of overall pressing, there are there are two points to make. Firstly, if the pressing is more, um, what's the word I'm looking for, selective, then it is probably simpler because the triggers, pressing triggers are not the complicated element. The complicated element is positional awareness, moving into space, cutting off the passing lanes, the degree to which you are pressing a man or a space, that kind of stuff. Right. <clears throat> the triggers themselves tend to be, you know, miscontrol, facing your own goal, that kind of thing. So I, I would be less concerned that the triggers would be more complex. I do think a point to make is that, okay, obviously these guys are exceptional athletes, but if you're pressing less, you're less tired. When you're less tired and you have more oxygen going to your brain, your decision making is better because you're not just going, I've got to fucking run after that because, you know, Mm -hmm. so it may be that there's also more discernment because it's like me when I'm walking to work. (laughs) Sure. (laughs) Because the because the players aren't operating to quite such an extent on autopilot of, you know, and this is no disrespect to them. Like they're phenomenal athletes, Mm. but if they're getting a little bit more recovery time during game, then it's also quite possible that the pressing will also be more effective because that decision-making of when to go and where to go is ever so slightly incrementally improved by the fact that they're not consistently knackered. Yeah. Okay, I like that. Um, The last thing we're going to talk about with regards to the team uh, is something we mentioned before is... 
Potential replacements. I mean, so we look at uh, the attacking lineup. It, it seems impossible at this time that anyone's going to come in and uh, displace Mane, Salah or Firmino. Um, but what that also means is that there are fewer options from the bench because we know that this summer it's likely that Daniel Sturridge is going to move on. It's likely, well, it's possible that, that Origi is also going to follow him. So we had a chat before the podcast started uh, we were thinking about players who are, and we I think we could talk all day about this, so we restricted it to players who could be an alternative to Firmino, who play in that sort of central attacking midfield role, occasionally as a false nine in the in the 4-3-3, as a kind of number 10 in the 4-2-3-1 with Salah ahead. And there's a list of, of players that we've, sort of, that we've come up with. We've um, had a look at similar players, players who, who offer uh, the similar strengths that he does. One that we discussed before we confirmed it with statistics, and obviously this is not a possibility, so it's more just a, 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 a topic of interest, is that Jesse Lingard is quite similar mm. to Roberto Firmino in some aspects of his play. For many reasons, Jesse Lingard is not going to move to Liverpool. <laughs> no. uh, the, least, uh, the least one being that he probably wouldn't want to sit on the bench. No. Uh, you know, there, are, there are more reasons there are more that are more reasons important than that. than that. But there are other players... Uh, who are possibilities? Although it's a, it's a it's a slim group, isn't it? Yeah, uh, I mean, so the first thing to say, and, and we we touch on this in the a video that we I guess are releasing next week on I think so. Fernandinho. Yeah. Um, so the premise of that video was Fernandinho is really important for Man City. You're going to have to replace him at some point because he's, he's old. Old. Uh, how do you do that? And I'm not going to give away anything because that would encourage you hopefully to watch the video but mm-hmm. the point is if you're looking at replacing player x and player x is good at <clears throat> 10 different things to varying degrees but is also an exceptional player so there are all of those 10 things are better than your average yeah when you try and replace them which aspect of that player are you most wanting to try and replace yeah so take Firmino for example Firmino, a whole range of qualities. A whole range of qualities. Brilliant player. But what is most important to Liverpool, assuming that you can't find another mm. Bobby Firmino, which you probably can't. You tell me, what's the most important aspect of his play? Well, no, you tell me. I think it's his ability to counter-press and okay. set up. So it could be that. Yeah. It could be his link play. Yeah. It's probably not his goal scoring. No, but he does score and a lot of goals. He does. So that's why the obvious A replacement choice. is probably going to be a downgrade as well, right? This is not dissimilar to the kind of five big points baseball moneyball thing, is it? Uh, Someone, you know, very expensive players who can do all these yeah, things well. Yeah, the five tools. Yeah. Um, and I, it's, it's, a, it's if, an if interesting question. If you find a replacement for, for, for Firmino who, yeah. who could facilitate that sort of uh, in-between-the-lines, starting the counter-press, the, the sort of centre of that forward defensive uh, role... It's very unlikely that you're going to find a player who is willing to uh, move, who isn't already on a massive, massive contract somewhere, who mm. can do that and is also a brilliant goal scorer, like Firmino. So and is a brilliant goal scorer and would additional want to sit on the bench. issues. <laughs> but also you're going to want somebody who is younger yeah, uh, because Liverpool have, I think, recruited fairly astutely in terms of the age profile of players. Yeah, They're not going to buy in a 28 or 29-year-old to do that if they are of that caliber. Yeah. If they are going to buy in a 28 or 29 year old striker, they're going to do it as a, as a B option, you know, as a, somebody who is a point of difference. Um, 
So the age profile, probably they're not going to look at anyone who's older than 24. Yeah. They're going to look mostly at pressing their ability to regain the ball by pressuring the ability to uh, drop off and link play. But they will also want somebody who can score goals. So, yeah, it's really, you know, this is why. Who have we got on our list? Our our list specifically of... um... Uh, So... Iago Aspas. No, he's too old. <laughs> he is too old. But it's funny, though, um, right? So, uh, well... Right wh- time, right place. Right right place, wrong time. Right. So, an interesting player who uh, could do many of those aspects, who has been linked with Liverpool before, is Nabi, uh, Nabil Fakir, mm-hmm. who's at Lyon. Yeah. Who, so he, who the, the move for him went so far as to then fall through, but right. then be described as having fallen through. Yes, exactly. And and he would be somebody that could come in and do that. Yeah. Would he want to sit on the bench? No. But again, if you're then looking at a, a situation where you're challenging on two or three fronts, one of them European, one of them domestic, it's good to have a player of that caliber where you can swap in and out. Yeah. You're not quite so reliant. Um, Patrick Catroni at AC Milan. Milan have just signed that um, Polish striker from Genoa, whose name I can't remember, but he's really good. Piatek, I think that's it. Catroni's a young guy. Uh, he's a good striker. He's played, I think, for the Italian national side. Very good in the air, but he is excellent at pressing and is also quite a good link player. So he's someone that potentially would be worth looking at. Um Gabriel Boschilia, who is uh, Monaco but on loan at Nantes, right. um, is also Brazilian, is not a dissimilar kind of almost an attacking midfielder, almost a kind of wide forward, centre forward sort of player. A nine and a half. Uh, yeah. Can I call it that? Yeah, I mean, they're all kind of nine and a half, aren't they, really? I suppose they but, are nowadays. Um, he's not necessarily as strong at the the pressing side of stuff but does have a bit more creativity and again i think this is the interesting point like we can hurl out names for as long as but it's what what is it that you're seeking to replicate and also is it worth seeking to replicate it who was that young chap at bournemouth i like that name oh david brooks Tell me about David Brooks. I think people would be excited about this. I don't know enough about David Brooks to be able to tell you about David Brooks. Mm. All I know is that people who know about David Brooks get really excited about him. Yeah, he popped up on a sort of statistical comparison, didn't he? Of some sorts, yes, yeah. yes. Yeah. But, I, I mean, it. I, genuinely, he's like he's been bought from somewhere, he's 12 years old. Yeah, he's, is, it's good though, because it's He's like, good at football. It's, it's like, a, you know, you don't... You, you don't really know anything about them, therefore you don't know any of the bad things, you don't know any of the downsides. You, you, you only have sort of unlimited potential, don't you, when yeah. you were young? Remember when you were young? Remember when you were young and you no, were just... No, that was uh... so long ago. He came from Sheffield United. Oh. He's a midfielder. Is he, he's Welsh as well, isn't he, did you say? He's profoundly Welsh. Right. He has nine Welsh caps, according to Wikipedia. Okay. Okay, well, listen, we're going to wrap that up now. That's 45 minutes. Um, I hope uh, listeners enjoyed that. Um, I think this is an approach that we're going to take for in the future because it's, it sort of makes sense for us in terms of timescale. We can get in very early on a Monday morning. We can select a game of the weekend, watch the game, discuss the game, and then extrapolate from the game to discuss... Broader talking points. Broader talking points about yeah. it, about a team, 
season wide. Um, so we've it makes it sound Spurs. like you've actually thought about this and come up with some sort of genuine plan. I did, mate. I did over the weekend. I had a little think. Oh, okay. I had a good. little think. All right, great. Telling you now. Um, but uh, yeah, 45 sort of... minutes into having already done it, now you're telling me what your plan is. Uh, we've done Spurs, we've done Liverpool, we've probably covered uh, United, although to death, to death. I know, but they just keep changing. Let's do Watford, let's do Watford. Yeah, I'm up for doing Watford. Um, I tell you what, I uh, I bought FIFA 19, imagine that, and I'm an adult. Absolutely, uh, no, here's so. my justification for it though it was New Year's Eve. Um, and my friend Adam, who's an even older adult than I am with a child, yeah, he said, uh, why don't we play the PlayStation together so we can play at the station? And uh, I went to N1 Games in Angel Islington, and I thought, well, it's only in £100,000. I'll just buy, I'll buy that for £100,000. And I played through the journey. Have you ever, no, you don't play the game, do you? Well, people, you know, some people will know what I'm listening. I got so emotional... <laughs> I but like so angry emotion. emotional. No, no, no. no. There's, there, honestly, this get this. It's a good game, right? It's a good game. And I played one. I played one a few years ago. I think the first one that had the journey. Out, it wasn't the last one. Might have been the one before. I didn't really play the PlayStation that much. It's a hangover of uh, of my younger twenties. But um, the journey is, uh, you, you know, you play as you play. Actually, in this game, you play as three players, right? There's Alex Hunter, who's the main guy. There's Kim Hunter, who's his sister. And there's Danny Williams, right? Who's this? Is the kind of uh, yeah. he's an, he's another footballer. Uh, you select sort of clubs that you play with, and you play through. You know, it's very clever. You go through a journey throughout the whole season. But Danny Williams, uh, I chose Wolves, which is what comes to mind. I won the Champions League with the, with, the, with them, obviously. But his little backstory with his brother, I was fucking crying. I was crying. Were you very drunk? No, my neck hurt. So maybe I was, you know, I was. I had How back long has pain your neck been hurting? This for? Was, this was just yesterday. I was playing this. Oh, oh but, okay. Uh, I thought you were talking about New Year's Eve. No, I, that's when I bought it. Oh right, okay. You um, lost me. And then I, I finished it into three games. But the the point is, very impressed. I, I I found it very moving. The dynamic between him and his brother and their, their dad, who I assume is dead, mm. really wasn't very giving. I, I don't know if the kids are picking up on this when they play the game or if they're just kind of playing through it. I was enthralled, and I found it very, very moving. Excellent. Yeah. Great. Anyway, that's the end of the podcast now. Um, oh, someone's walking past our office there. What are you doing on our floor? Anyway, uh, we will be back next Monday. I also, I think um, Seb Stafford-Bloor is in midweek, uh, and he's doing an interview with someone very exciting, which we're also going to film, so members will be able to watch that on the YouTube channel, and non-member scum will be able to listen to that for free everywhere else. <laughs> if you would like to if you'd like to elevate your status from scum to member, you can go to YouTube and join the TIFO Football YouTube membership scheme, um, which would be very much appreciated to support us in our work, and also to gain access to some you know, tasty tidbits. Um, and yeah, that's all for us from now. Thank you, Alex. Thank you very much. See you later. Bye.